Um, I'm Steve. I'm the assistant uh, pastor here at InTown, and uh, we are have just got this new space, and so we're we've been trying for years to figure out how to get an adult ed program going without a space, and now we have one. So. Hopefully, that was the only problem that we'll encounter <laughs> with an adult ed program. Um, but we're going to be doing a class on spiritual disciplines, and I just want to give you a quick scheduling overview so that you kind of know what to expect. We're meeting this week, the following week, and the week after, the 13th and the 20th, and then we're taking two weeks off, and then we'll meet for another three weeks in November, okay? So this morning, all we're going to be doing is an introduction talking about why should we do spiritual disciplines, and then throughout the course, we're going to have different instructors going over different specific spiritual disciplines, how to do them, why you do them, and and how to kind of start building a practice, okay? So um, that's sort of just the nuts and bolts, but uh, as we get started, I'm going to have to talk like this for a second because i got to set that down. Uh, I love music. Some of you know me, and we have music nights, and we put on records, or we, we put on our iPhones, and we listen to music, and I love it. And I love live shows. I love listening to music. I absolutely love music so much. I feel like music is kind of a part of my like soul, you know, my makeup, like who I am. I just love it. And so because I love it so much, I wanted to just share with you guys some music. Because I, you know, I just, I love it so much. Uh, I didn't actually prepare anything. But there's, um, you know, there's some pop songs out there that are just, uh, uh, how do you, yeah, I don't really play guitar anymore. I used to play guitar. And now I don't know what to play because I didn't really prepare a song. But you got to believe me that I really, really love music. That's as far as I'm going to get. I said I was going to sing, but that was a lie. (laughs) Music takes practice. It takes an incredible amount of practice. When we hear our musicians on Sunday mornings and they come together, it, it only happens because each of those individual people are practicing their instruments day in and day out, and then they practice together as a group. If they were like me and they just tried to get up and say, well, but I really love music, so I'm just going to feel it, what would happen? It would just be noise, right? So in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at what are the spiritual disciplines. And as I said, we're going to have different instructors kind of sharing with you some of the, the, the broader, historically rooted spiritual disciplines that over time the Christian community has found not only to be helpful, but to really be sort of a means of grace where they can meet with God. And it's my hope that by the end of our six weeks together, you're going to have a better understanding of how these disciplines work, not just so that you can know it up here, but so you can actually start living them out practically. Because the Christian life is exactly like music in many ways. We, we can say that we love Jesus and we love the things of the church and we love all the stuff that he's done for us, but if we don't actually practice and engage with him regularly— Our lives are going to sound as bad as me playing guitar and singing without practicing at all. And so that's really the goal of this course is that if you haven't heard of some of these disciplines before, maybe one or two of them will pique your interest. I would recommend don't try to start all of them all at once. But do try to, to, to think about which ones can I start to incorporate into my life now. And if you can't, you might need to ask yourself, why not? 
So for this morning, though, I want to talk with you about the question, why? Why spiritual disciplines? Why should we do them? Why should we learn them? And so the rest of this course is going to be really um, interactive, except not this morning. Sorry. (laughs) So I'm going to try to go really quick so that we can have time for questions at the end. Um, But really, the question of why should we do spiritual disciplines is, is really quite complex and multifaceted, because what we're really asking is, what does it mean to be Christian? Which is an extension of the question, what does it mean to be human? And so we're, we're going to be pulling together all sorts of tributaries and streams of Christian theology to try to understand why are the spiritual disciplines important. And so here's the premise right at the very beginning. The premise is that those that are in Christ, people that have faith in the Christian gospel, are in Christ, and they are to grow up into him. And the New Testament is just absolutely replete with this explicit truth. And so we're not going to take the time this morning to go through all of the passages, but as you uh, hopefully read your Bible during the week, which is one of the disciplines that we'll be looking at later, you're going to start to notice that all throughout the New Testament, there's all this sort of different language, like living unto God, growing up into Christ, working out your salvation, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. All of these things presuppose the idea that if you are a Christian, you are going to grow. That's the premise. Now, it's been said that the first question of Christian discipleship is, what do we do now? And it's a question that was asked by the very first disciples of Jesus, even as he ascended into heaven, they kind of sat around looking at each other like, well, what do we do now? And it's a question that should be asked by every generation of Christian. It's not, it's not one that can be asked in the past and then left alone. Every generation of Christians have to ask, what do we do now? And it's not simply the question, what do we do now? But it's also the question, what do we do now? See? Christian discipleship, seen in terms of this question, is revealed to us both as action, it's practice, it involves physicality. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But it's also revealed to us as something timely. It's in the present tense. So we have to understand that that there are movements within the church at large in which we find ourselves. And we need to be able to kind of sort through what's going on so that we know what it means to be a Christian community in this time, in this place. And so, for example, there are movements within uh, the church, largely in the Western world, that that are kind of termed restorationist movements. And it's this idea that we have to get back to doing church like it was done in the New Testament. And so whatever they did in Acts, that's what we're going to do. And if we don't see it there, we're not going to do it. And it's really a a, a good motivation. There are people that are wanting to kind of strip away the clutter that that has kind of glammed onto Christian practice and get back to what was the earliest church doing. And they're trying to strip off layer after layer of cultural paint that the church manages to bathe herself in. But if getting back to the golden age becomes the way to do church, then we have failed to understand that the church has always found herself embedded in a certain time. So the other side of it, though, is that there are also churches and groups of people who who think that they don't really have any sort of heritage. There's no historical rootedness to any of the decisions that they make. And so they just kind of say, well, whatever works, if it can get people here, then we'll do that. And there's no real sense of where did we come from? What are the things that we should be changing and should not be changing? And then there are churches that are um, kind of a little bit closer to home for, for many of us here at InTown, right? We are historically rooted, but we have an impulse 
that we kind of want the 1500s to be our time, as if that was kind of like the greatest moment in all of church history. Were there amazing things happening? Absolutely. But the reality is, is that that was 500 years ago. And so we have to understand what it means to actually be in this time, in this place. And so here's a way how this plays out in Portland in 2013. We find ourselves largely in a post-Christian city in the United States of America. It's 21st century. And this means that our articulation of the gospel, our discipleship practices, the things that we do must be prepared to intersect with a post-Christian culture. We can't assume a pre-Christian method. And, but nor can we assume a Christendom, Christian empire method. Neither of these things will really work because the culture is not pre-Christian, but it is also not really Christendom. It's a totally different thing. And we also can't pretend as though modern American culture hasn't shaped us. Our, our culture is forming us in ways that we don't realize, and, and our culture has given us a story and a set of desires that we don't even know are there. They're just kind of running under the surface, and they very occasionally bubble up. So if we fail to make ourselves aware that many of us have been raised excuse, exclusively in a consumeristic culture, we will fail to notice when our ideas about what church should be what discipleship should be, and, and, and what we should be doing as a Christian community are just simply mirrors of that consumer culture. Does that make sense? We have to be aware of, of the, the shaping of our own desires by everything that we don't even recognize in our own life. All the noise. Is, it's, it's telling us that we should think a certain way and feel a certain way. And that just spills right over into how we think about church. And we need to at least make ourselves aware to it. But likewise, if we fail to be aware that people in our communities have not not heard the gospel, but have most likely heard a caricature of the gospel just by virtue of living in America at this time, we will fail to present the gospel in a compelling and honest way. Did you catch that? We talk about living in a post-Christian setting, and we say that we, we need to explain our terms in such a way that people who have never heard the gospel would be able to understand it. And that's very true, and I think that that's a good thing to want to do. But we're not actually preaching the gospel to people that have never heard of Christianity before. They've heard of it, but they've, they've written a caricature of it in their mind oftentimes that they have failed to truly understand what the actual core of the message is. And so it's not... Our desire to speak in a language that, that our culture understands is not about relevancy. It is about understanding Christ-haunted people and places, uh, from that Flannery O'Connor phrase. And we've got to speak in ways that will actually challenge their presuppositions about what Christianity is. So our culture has presuppositions about Christianity. And if we don't seek to understand what those are, we're not really going to get the truth of the message across because they're going to hear something and think that it means this over here when really it means something different, okay? So the, 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 the first question of Christian discipleship is what do we do now? What do we do now? But then we have to ask ourselves some things about even our own ideas of, of what's important within Christianity. And it's the environment that a lot of us have lived in for a long time. And there's a parable for understanding how unaware we become to our environment. And you, some of you have probably heard me tell this before. I stole it from somebody else. But there are two young fish swimming along, and they're met by an older fish. And the older fish tips his hat, and he says, Morning, how's the water, boys? Just kind of look at each other, and they swim on. And the one young fish says to the other one, What the heck is water? 
And the thing to understand is that we get so used to things as they are that we fail oftentimes to perceive the reality that we're actually embodying. Just like fish are so used to water that they just thought it was a thing. We're swimming about in air all the time. Well, you know, we don't think about it. Now, this, this happens within our theology all the time. And so here, here's sort of a really broad example of how this happens, in, especially in our kind of uh, church heritage and tradition. And that is that the reformers, right? Calvin, Luther, all those guys 500 years ago, all of those guys assumed that everyone was quite familiar with patristic theology, the, the writings and teachings of the earliest church theologians and fathers. So Calvin and Luther and all of those guys were wrapped up in dialogue about a couple of very specific issues that absolutely needed addressing in their time. Most specifically, how justification works. That was like the key issue in their time that they were trying to wrestle out with a church that had kind of gotten off track, so to speak. But what happens Centuries later, as people like us latch on to the specific teachers and writings, to the things that that those teachers assumed as knowledge, right? We latch on to what Calvin and Luther had to say, but but they assumed that, that everyone that read them would have been utterly familiar with the patristic writings and teachings. And so when we don't study those things because they didn't, they never told us to, they just assumed we would. All of those things get lost in the ether. And suddenly, the only thing that matters to us is the thing that Calvin or Luther shouted the loudest about. And it's not to say that those things aren't terribly, terribly important because they absolutely are. But if Luther or Calvin were here, I think that they would be pretty dismayed at how myopic we've become, at how we've disregarded the other streams of thought within Christian theology and Christian scripture. And this is what Dallas Willard picks up on when he says that the thing that has done some of the most inestimable harm to the church is the idea of Christian salvation as mere forgiveness of sins. Mere forgiveness of sins. Does salvation include forgiveness of sins? Yeah. Thank goodness. Absolutely. But if that's all that salvation entails, we're actually going to have a really hard time making sense of much of the New Testament. Like, what are we supposed to do with the statements of Jesus when he equates salvation with life in the kingdom of God, with life abundantly? And what are the other New Testament writers talking about when they talk about offering our bodies as sacrifices to God, of Christians being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? What does it mean If it's just about forgiveness, what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Salvation has got to be about far more than just forgiveness of sins. And when we understand where we sit in time and space, we will begin to realize, hey, maybe we've assumed things that we shouldn't assume and we should actually go back and really investigate them. And so we don't have time this morning, unfortunately, to to actually paint a full-orbed picture of what scripture describes as salvation. But when we can get a a broader vision of what salvation means, we will begin to reorient our idea of what it means to have faith in Jesus. Now, one of the most overused analogies for having faith is sitting in a chair. Have Have you guys heard that analogy before? Yeah, here's this chair, right? And we all believe that it can hold my weight. And so what what Christians in the past have said, well, you know, it, it will support you. And all you have to do is sit down. 
just sit in the chair and, and you'll know, like your faith will become knowledge. And so then, you know, what happens? You sit down and if there's a smart aleck in the room, he might whip the chair out from beneath you, but no one's going to do that here. And this is the analogy that we have, that we have used a lot of times to talk about Christian faith. Just exercise your faith. You say you believe the chair will hold you, so sit down. The problem with this analogy is that it misrepresents what the call of the Christian message actually is. So when we think about having faith in Jesus, we need to realize that as many times as Jesus called people to believe in him, to have faith in him, it was at least that many times that he called them to follow him. To have faith, then, is to enter into an ontological reality. It is a reality that has being. Having faith isn't so much believing that there is a pathway over there that leads to life. Rather, having faith is walking the path. You can't follow without faith, but you also can't have faith and not follow Jesus. The New Testament simply does not have a category for people who have a true, robust faith in Christ and are not following him. Those people don't exist. But what's happened in much of our evangelical culture is we have tried to divorce faith from following. And and the New Testament never does that. Because having faith, following Jesus, is a regenerative thing. It's about new life. In having faith in his life, death, and resurrection, you are actually being embedded into the life of the Trinity. And that's really probably the fullest way in one sentence that we could describe what salvation means in the New Testament. Being engrafted into the life of the Trinity. So when we understand that the story of the entire scripture and all of history, we see that God is the source of all life, that he lives in community eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he creates the universe, he does so as a place in which he will dwell with his people. It's a physical space. And the fall then is accurately described as death because what? It severs humanity from God, who is what? The source of all life. So in a sense, the Christian story is a story of God getting his people back to having life in him. It's not just about going away after death. It's about right now, in the here and now, having life in God, which is why Jesus talks so much about coming to give people life and life abundantly. But if, if that sort of understanding of the Christian story is true, then it's going to cause us to rethink some things about the spiritual life as well. If faith is about following, then we have to understand, if we're here to talk about spiritual disciplines, then we need to understand that God's mission in the world is not to save unembodied souls and cart them off to a pillowy, cloudy heaven where everyone plays harps. It is instead a mission to save the world. He, he is about remaking this place, this physical place, and all of its dimensions. With, and he's going to rebuild it. Why? So that he can dwell here with his people. That's the vision of Revelation. When the new Jerusalem comes down, it's coming down into God's universe that he created so that he could dwell with his people. And his people are his image bearers, and they are, we are material and immaterial. We are physical and spiritual, which means, and, and, and these things are joined together, which means that when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we're actually talking about physical practices, actions that require a body. Reading, praying, kneeling, 
fasting, it should be a clue to us that almost all of the spiritual disciplines require some level of physicality as to what God is about in his world and what he has made us to be. And it's these actions that require a body that actually form us inwardly. They change the way that we think. They change what we desire. And then that flows back outward into physical action again with our physical bodies. So just as practicing guitar, if I had actually practiced my guitar for the past 10 years, I would have built finger strength. I would have had calluses, dexterity, a familiarity with the fretboard. And just as an experienced guitarist doesn't need to look at his or her fingers as they find the notes, so, so to we, as we work out the actions of prayer, study, sacrifice, worship, partaking in the sacraments, all of the spiritual disciplines, that's going to create within us a spiritual dexterity, an ability to play the music with our eyes closed, so to speak. So much of our discussion over the next few weeks is, is really going to have everything to do with what's being talked about in John 15 and 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 13, but um, I want to go back to the music analogy for a moment. I'm not going to sing or play anything again or try to. I've known two pretty amazing pianists in my life, and one of them is a guy that I grew up with. We've known each other literally since we were like a few weeks old. Um, and his name is Mark, and he uh, has played piano for... 27 years, probably, of his 31. I mean, the guy is just amazing. This is the guy who, if, you're, if your musicians at your wedding bail at the last minute, he can come and play jazz for four hours, and it's just, like, incredible. And whenever he sits down and puts his fingers on the keys, he closes his eyes, and he just starts to move, and he gets this look on his face, and anyone who hears him and sees him playing, I mean, you're just immediately caught up in what he's doing. You know that he loves music. And it's impossible to not start smiling as you see and hear him play because it's just incredibly moving. Now, my other friend I knew in college, and he was a math whiz and he could remember people that he'd met like years ago one time. I mean, he knew my parents' names. He knew everybody's names. And he could sit down with this incredibly complicated piece of music and just work it out. I mean, first time, no problem. And he wouldn't mind me saying this, but he didn't really like music that much. He kind of saw it as like a math problem. So he would just kind of look at the music and do some whatever sort of musical algebra you have to do and just play it. And it's not that, that math is inferior to music or that this guy's inferior to my other friend. But when it came to music, there, there wasn't this visceral connection between him and what his fingers were doing. And I would be willing to bet that if I were to bring both of these guys in here with a keyboard, you would be able to tell who was who without me telling you. It's that obvious. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that having deeper spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues or prophesying, that are good things, he says. Things to be desired, he says. But he says that not possessing love makes those deeper spiritual gifts worthless. Having the deepest faith, he says, a faith that could pick up a mountain and move it into the sea, but not having love is basically a net zero. Living a life of sacrifice, giving all that we have to the poor, the severity of chastity, uh, of chastity, fasting, all of these sort of physical things that we could do to prove how spiritual we are. If we do all of them and don't have love, it's gotten us nowhere. And just like musicians that go unaffected by what they're doing, the result is usually nothing more than noise. 
So practicing the spiritual disciplines that we're going to be talking about without love will result in nothing but cold, dead stone. It will be nothing more than spiritual static. And as I was meeting with with one of the folks who's going to be teaching another section of this class, he said to me, I hope that, that everyone will be aware how dangerous this is. If you try to engage in these practices as a way to get God to love you, it's not going to go well. It's really not going to end well at all. And as I was thinking about what it means, how, how, how practice and grace intersect, I realized that, that that's not really even the best way to think about it because it, it makes it seem like they're going like this in different directions when really they're just going like this, which is what Jesus talks about in John 15, which we'll get to in a moment. But as I say, if, if you can practice these things without love, it's worthless. But on the other hand, I love music every bit as much as my friend Mark, don't I? But no one wants to hear me play. No one. The difference between Mark and I is that Mark stuck with the practice. I took piano lessons and then I quit him in fifth grade. And now I can't play anything more than like that horrible version of chopsticks that annoys everyone. Love and practice go hand in hand. It has to be both. And so in John 15, here Jesus is having an extended discussion with his disciples about the nature of following him, of what is about to happen to him. And the metaphor that he uses to describe the relationship between him and his followers is a vine and branches. And he tells them that apart from him, they are like branches laying on the ground, dead, no fruit possible. You're not going to find any grapes on those branches. But if they abide in him, he says what? You will bear much fruit. And he says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus tells his disciples that their love for him will be made evident in their practice of keeping his commands. So you're thinking, well, great, now we've got to go back and read the whole Bible again to figure out what his commands are. Actually, no, he sums it up for us right there. What is his command? That you love one another. Well, what does that mean? Well, he tells us that too. What does love look like? Giving up your life for another person. Aren't you glad you asked? It's very concrete. It's very direct. And Jesus continues to implore them to remain in his love and in him as what? As he remains in his father and in his father's love. He tells us that he loves us as his father loved him. And this is the base of our understanding of what it means to be Christian. It is not about waiting until you die to go live with God. It's having a life with God here and now. And we know this because when Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in him, he's actually shown us what that looks like. We see it all the way throughout the Gospels. How did he do it? He did it basically through the disciplines that we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks. Solitude, a bunch of time in prayer, study, worship, fasting, celebration, Jesus abides with his father during his time on earth. Now, just, I know that I've been talking a while and you guys have been sitting and hearing people talk, but you, but you got to get this because if we don't get this, we're not going to understand the, the, what it means to be Christian, okay? Jesus abides with his father during his time on earth, not by virtue of the fact that he is in Trinitarian relationship with his father, but by engaging with God in these thin spaces, in these spiritual disciplines. The gospel writers go out of their way time and time again to make it clear that Jesus is the spirit-filled man. 
He abides in God, not because they are of the same substance, though that's absolutely true, but because he practices these spiritual disciplines. So if you want to know what it means to abide in him, it looks exactly the same. What else could it mean for us to abide in Jesus? We have a a crystal clear picture in his life. And and this is where the question of why do spiritual disciplines, why should we do them? This is where it becomes so important because the Christian life is not simply about having sins forgiven. It is not about waiting till heaven to live with God. And it's not about believing certain things to be true. Though all of those things are accurate, that's not the core of it. The core of the Christian life is abiding. It's working calluses onto the fingers of our souls in prayer in seeking first the kingdom of God through moments of silence, solitude, and service. It's preaching the good news and freedom to the poor by practicing sacrifice, simplicity, tithing, all of these things that we're going to be talking about. And really, what we're saying is that we're going to become like Jesus. Do you guys remember those WWJD bracelets and T-shirts and tote bags? And I think they made cars, too. What would Jesus do? Seems like, like the sort of question that we should be asking here, right? Seems like the question implicit in practicing spiritual disciplines. And in one way, it is really a very apt question. But more often than not, it's been used the way that I used to play basketball games as a kid. And we're ending here. I love Michael Jordan. I mean, he was the greatest basketball player ever as far as I'm concerned, because I didn't, you know, I didn't know all those other guys. But when I was a kid and you were watching on your little TV screen and the static would come and you'd hit the side, it was, it was Michael Jordan. He was amazing. And he had this ability to soar through the air and do these spin moves. And remember how he would just move the ball all around? And what was he doing the whole time as he was getting ready to dunk the thing? Do you guys remember? The tongue's just below the chin, just all the way up. So here I am, my gravel driveway. I got a 10-foot, 3-inch basketball hoop there. And, man, I try to emulate this guy. I try to spin all around, you know, the ball slipping in the gravel. I'm going down on my knees. I'm doing all these spins. And the whole time I'm trying to remember, just keep, keep your tongue out, Steve. Keep your tongue out. <laughs> Guess what, guys? I didn't crush it on the court like Mike. Can you believe it? But you know why? Other than... <laughs> The obvious, like, it has a lot to do with who I am. I'm not really that athletic. But beyond that, one of the biggest differences between me and Mike is that Mike practiced. And not just that Mike practiced. He practiced all the time. And it wasn't just that he practiced doing those spin moves. He probably hardly ever practiced those. But what did he do? He worked out. He did strength training. He went on probably enormously long runs to get his lungs to be able to to do the work needed for 15 minutes at a time. He ate right all the time. His entire life was orbiting around what he needed to be able to do in those five minutes where it really counted on the court. So often when we ask the question, what would Jesus do? We try to just stick our tongue out like Mike on the court and expect to get a slam dunk. And it's just not the way that it works. Was it helpful for me to try to act like Mike in the moment without acting like him the rest of the week? Not at all. Let's, let's say that maybe you're a bit of an aggressive driver. I mean, I'm not. I don't know why I even thought of that. 
And so here's this guy and he's tailing you, right? And he's just been tailing you. And maybe you have a six-month-old baby in the back of the car and you're getting really incensed. And then he rear-ends you. And now you're thinking to yourself, well, WWJD, right, guys? We can't assume that making a decision like Jesus would make in the moment is even possible if we have failed to emulate him in these ways. Christian discipleship is not about asking what would Jesus do in the moment of decision. It's about orbiting your life around him. Just like Michael Jordan orbited everything he did around needing to be able to perform those five minutes on the court. So if you engage in solitude, in prayer, in tithing, sacrifice in daily ways, then loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, doing these things that Jesus told us to do that seem so impossible will actually become the easiest thing in the world to do. But it takes practice and it takes time. So that's why for the next five weeks now, we're going to be going through what these disciplines are, how they work, and hopefully how you'll see how you can incorporate them into your life and start to reorient your life orbiting around this life in the kingdom of God. So, man, that was a lot of stuff. Uh, questions, <laughs> clarifications, comments? Nothing? All sewn up in a bag? We're all good? Yeah, I can. I actually can play a G chord. Yeah. This feels weird. It doesn't feel normal. It's not something that I grew up with. It's not something that people around me at the time, even though I went to a Christian school, I was at evangelical churches, these things were not talked about. They were not practiced um, in the ways that I'm learning about them. So let's talk about that after. Yeah. Uh, for those of you playing the home game, Jessica's comment was basically that I mean, it really is sort of like practicing music. Your, your fingers feel so wooden at first. It just feels awful. Like people were not meant to slide their fingers up razor wire. I mean, it, it hurts. But the more you do it, it just starts to feel natural. And, and, and honestly, you start to feel like, what was, how did I get by without this before? Yeah. Richard? Yeah, a couple of observations uh, also. Um, Can I pass this to you just so I don't have to summarize? No. <laughs> All right, you're not going to hear this, people at home. Sorry. They might. I've got a lot. All right. So, um, first thing, I think that's necessary to keep in mind when we, our U.S. pragmatism takes over in these kinds of things, and there's no guarantee. There's no, there's no um, a perfect correlation between exercising spiritual gifts and becoming a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. All right. You can just be if you're fasting a lot. You can just be a hungry non-spiritual person. I mean, it doesn't always work. Um, the second thing uh, of several observations that, that I'd like to make over time is that it doesn't always come to the end that we would expect. You mentioned the fact that the most disciplined spiritual person we know is, is Christ himself.
himself, who was crucified for me and us. And it may not take us where we want to be. It may cause divisions in our lives, in our families. It may cause divisions between ourselves and others in our congregation, ourselves and others in the world. It's not, it is not always what we expect. God does not always take us where we think we want to go. We begin with some presuppositions, and we may not end up there at all. And I think we have to be uh, beware of believing that by doing this, I'm going to become spiritual, or that by doing this, I'll become kind of a happy spiritual person, or it'll come to a good end. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good reminder. Um, yeah, th- this isn't a guarantee that you're just going to become this amazing kind of person. And then, even if you do become spiritual, look out. As you study the, script, the pages of Scripture, you're going to realize that the people that followed God around wasn't really great for most of them. wasn't that great. Anybody else? Questions? Comments? Is it warm in here, or is it just because I've been talking? Okay. All right. So next week, Dave and Karen Carlson are going to talk about solitude and silence. Um, and that... Those right there really are some of the um, kind of earliest things, I think, that that people in our world need to work on in order to just find space to do some of these other disciplines. So I do hope that you'll come back and hear what they have to say or sit in silence, as the case may be. Um, And, yeah, if you have questions, further comments, uh, you can reach me by email, steveatintownchurch.com. And that's it. Why don't I pray for us before we head out? God, so much of our lives are wrapped up in um, control and comfort. And so I I think for a lot of us, uh, learning how to practice spiritual disciplines could just be another way in which we try to control our own lives, our spirituality, and perhaps even ludicrously try to control you. So I ask that um, you would give us all a spirit of humility, of true curiosity, and a deep sense of your love and your grace, knowing that, that you sent Christ to die for us before we made any declaration towards you. Would we simply want to know more of that grace Would we simply not be content to stroll along the creek bed of your mercy, but rather dive in and drink deeply of who you are and and face, as Richard was saying, some potentially dire consequences for doing so. But, But if we are kept in your spirit, would you fortify us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.